0: So the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to the praise of his glory.
1: To us. Now, Paul wrote so that, uh, that the Ephesian church would not lose heart in the trials that they faced and be tempted to move away from the gospel. We, we must not let looks deceive us. We must not lose heart based on service appearance. Can I say that too much of that state? Now, I hope throughout this, this series in Ephesians that together we'll come to see uh, or be reminded just how... Precious is Christ's church, the church that he employed with his life, and just how integral our role is in God's great plans. Before we get into the letter itself, uh, let's just uh, get things in context. We've already been doing that a little bit throughout our meeting this morning, which is really very, very helpful. But we're going to have a, another brief look at Paul's own ministry uh, in Ephesus and its surrounds. Uh, we've read a little bit from chapter 19. Uh, one of the things I, I the first thing I want you to see is that Paul's actually got a, a powerful and a victorious ministry. <laughs> uh, we saw in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, how Paul preached daily for two years in Ephesus, in the hall of Paranus, And you see there in verse 10, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I think we've got a map up there for you to have a look at There you go. So it gives you an idea. See Ephesus there on the the coast on the left hand side, but throughout all of Asia, uh, the gospel is spreading to all people throughout all of Asia heard the word of the Lord by Jews and Greece. And so thousands are being saved and are turning to Christ. But not only that, uh, in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 19, we're told that God was doing many extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Uh, and just like most of the miracles in Acts, they authenticated Paul as a genuine apostle, continuing the work of Jesus. And, and the gospel was having this extraordinary impact on Asian society. So look at verse 18 and the following. It says there also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found counted 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There was uh, no shortage of God's power and victory at work in Paul's ministry. That's not the whole story either. Is it? Because Paul and other Christians also faced significant conflict and suffering. Uh, in chapter 19 of Acts verse 9, Uh, Some of the Jews tried to damage Paul's message and leave people away from it. Uh, In the second half of chapter 19, there's a a riot because some of the tradesmen who uh, made idols for the great goddess Artemis uh, were losing business. And so Paul's life was in danger and had to be protected. And then in Acts chapter 20, verse 3, there's a plot made against Paul that he needs to escape from. And later in chapter 20, as Paul is on his way to Rome after being away from Ephesus for some time, Paul calls together uh, the leaders, the elders, to warn them about what life for the church would be like in the future. Uh, he reminds them that his ministry among them had been through tears and trials in verse 9 of the chapter 1. And in verse 23, he tells them that everybody goes, he's afflicted and he expects to be put in prison. And then he warned in verses 28 and following to keep watch over themselves and over the church because false teachers would come in and try and spread the message and turn people away from the gospel. And so as we come to the letter, letter to the Ephesians, which is written about five years after Paul had been in Ephesus, everything that he warned them about is happening. Paul is in prison as he writes them. False teachers are troubling the Ethiopian church. Pagan superstitions still abound. And the church doesn't look as powerful as it once looked. Things are like hard. The gospel was opposed. The apostle was looking weak in prison. The danger of discouragement was very real. So why does Paul write this letter? I would say three things. Do I need to stop? Yeah. Is this not working? It's
0: not working.
1: Right. <laughs> it's just about to speak loud, so. that's a fun morning isn't it are you saying i'm shorter tom is that what you're trying to say mate? Just... no 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 i really oh, oh really seriously i'm sure there are people who would be happy to extract the view sorry guys um you know i, I talk so loud that uh, sometimes i don't even need amplification but i guess there's uh, people online who do need it so um there you go uh, so let me just come back to where we're up to. Uh, that is, we're, we're looking at how, how things, all the things that Paul warned about are actually going on now in Ephesus as he writes to them. And so, you know, why does Paul write this letter? And I, I think I'd say three things. He writes so that they would know, so that they would remember, and thirdly, so that they would stand firm, that they would not lose heart, that they would know, that they would remember, that they would not lose heart. Now, in the first half of Ephesians, Uh, Ephesians, as a letter, breaks fairly neatly into two sections, so chapters 1 to 3 and then chapters 4 to 6. But there are two times uh, Paul tells them what he prays for in the first part of this uh, this letter that he writes. And on both occasions, he prays for knowledge, that they would know certain things. So in chapter 1, verse 16, if you've got your Bibles open there, chapter 1, verse 16, he prays that they will know Christ properly that they will know the hope that they have, the inheritance that they've been given and the power of God at work in them. And then in chapter three, verse 17 and following, he prays that they will know the extraordinary love that Christ has for them. So he wants them to know these things. And then in chapter two, verse 11 and following, he wants them to remember, remember all that Christ has done for them. It's one thing to know what Christ has done for us, It's another thing to remember it, especially when things aren't going so well. He wants them to remember that though they were once dead in their sins, alienated from God, that now through Jesus, they have been raised up with Christ. And so in chapter 3, verse 13, he says to them, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. See, outwardly, things don't look that great, but Paul wants them to see with their spiritual eyes what can't always be seen clearly physically. They need to know and remember the truth of God's eternal plans so that they don't lose heart, and so they stand firm in the gospel. Okay, well, again, if you've got your Bibles open there in chapter 1, Uh, Let's take a closer look at these first 14 verses in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians is a letter, we've already seen that, written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, It was written to the Ephesians, but as we've seen, it's likely that it was intended for a larger group of churches around the whole region of Ephesus, um, in fact, Asia. Uh, Paul's greeting in in verses 1 and 2 is a fairly standard greeting of Paul's. Uh, Paul begins by identifying himself as the writer and then by his designation as an apostle, of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That is, Paul is establishing his credentials and the official character of his writing. And as an, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul is, uh, is fully authorized and sent by Jesus. He has the authority to proclaim the gospel and to establish and build up churches, which we will see is crucial to the fulfillment of God's plans. But it's pretty overwhelming as you start to look closely at these next few verses from verse three here in Ephesians. I mean, some of our, our greatest theologians both past and present rave about the rich and impressive nature of this letter as Paul outlines God's big plan for the universe and its implications for us. In verses three to 14 are actually one long sentence uh, you know, we've put in the full stops and comments and those kind of things. But one long sentence where Paul piles up the descriptions of what God has done for us and why. And so the rest of the, uh, the outline of the talk this morning comes under three main headings. That is all ours, all in Christ, all because of God. So all ours, all in Christ, all because of God. Okay, let's, let's pick it up from verse 3. Uh, which we'll come back to a couple of times. But verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice Paul, Paul lays it on thick. Blessed be God who blesses us with every blessing. Now, to be blessed here is to be given things of benefit. God has blessed us with every blessing. Now, the us here refers to all Christians, uh, everything of benefit we could possibly need, God has blessed us with. It's not, however, to be mistaken as material blessings. These are spiritual blessings, notice. In other words, they are much greater than any possible material blessing that God might bless us with, as we'll see in a moment. Now, in the the earlier days of my own Christian life, I was asked on a number of occasions, really, uh, whether or not I had received the second blessing. Um, From time to time, I was encouraged by another Christian person to pray for the second blessing of the the Holy Spirit, which which would empower me uh, to better live the Christian life. The first blessing was okay, but I needed the second one as well. Evidently, I was somehow deficient in terms of spiritual blessings. But that's contradictory to what we read here, isn't it? God has blessed me with every spiritual blessing. And so to speak of a second blessing makes people think that they don't have everything. But if you, if you are in Christ, you do. And furthermore, Paul tells us the sphere of these blessings. That is, every spiritual blessing God has given is in the heavenly places. Now, Paul uses the term that term five times here in Ephesians and nowhere else in his letters. In in chapter 1, verse 20, both God and Christ are seated in the heavenly places above all other rule. While in chapter 2, verse 6, Christians have also been raised to sit with Christ in the heavenly places. But additionally, chapter 3, verse 10 speaks of God's wisdom being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places And then finally, in chapter 6, verse 12, the spiritual forces of evil arrayed against us are also in the heavenly places. See, what that tells us is that the heavenly places isn't just a locality where God exists and the evil forces, but it's part of our existence as well. It's the spiritual reality of our existence that we can't see but affects us. The heavenly places are the sphere where all God's blessings are put into effect for us. Now, the problem for us flesh and blood humans uh, is that we don't understand the importance of the heavenly places in God's great plans. Uh, We want our blessings in the physical places. And so we sometimes fail to understand the blessings that we uh, actually have. And so let's just uh, take a few moments to uh, look at how we've been blessed uh, here in this passage. So verse four, notice. God has chosen us. Uh, Verse 5 speaks of our adoption into God's family. Uh, Verse 7, we have been redeemed through his blood and have forgiveness of our sins. Verses 9 and 10, God has revealed his big plan for the fullness of time to us. And then in verses 13 and 14, we have been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee until we ultimately acquire our inheritance. Let's let's just flesh those out a little bit because verses four and five speak of God's election. God has predestined us for adoption as his sons. Now, I want to acknowledge that people don't always understand this doctrine, nor do they always like it. Uh, When it comes to God's choosing or predestining people, some people just want to uh, ignore it, put it in the too hard basket. Uh, Others sometimes get angry about it. What right does God have to choose people? which in a sense is a bit of a funny question given that he is God since he's God, uh, and, and you know, we kind of expect that he might have some decisions that he can make, but it's a question I think that I've asked myself um, at times. And I'm very thankful now for this particular doctrine. It's a wonderful doctrine because without it, no one is going to heaven. If there's no election, then zero people would be saved. The Bible tells us that, that if God didn't seek us, We would never seek him. See, why is it that we pray that God would open someone's eyes to understand who he is, that he would bring them to salvation? See, chapter 2 tells us that we were once dead in our sins, sons of disobedience rather than sons of God, deserving of God's wrath. But God has chosen to adopt us as his children. The God of the universe has become our father. And when the Bible uses the word sons, it's a relational term. It means heir. A son inherits all that belongs to his parents. See, there's no room for pride on our side. God chose the sinful. Isn't he wonderful? And the purpose of our election is that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's to be the character of our lives. But that's not the natural character of our lives, is it? Uh, Which is why in verse 7, we have been blessed with redemption and forgiveness. In in order to be adopted, we need to be redeemed and forgiven. In chapter 2, again, verse 1, Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Elsewhere, he says that we were slaves to sin, sons of disobedience. And so in order to be adopted as God's sons, we needed to be bought out of slavery redeemed from a helpless and hopeless situation as slavery is and forgiven from our sins. In other words, our adoption came at a price, a very hefty price. We had to be bought out of our slavery and set free. And God sent his son to the cross. Verse 7, through his blood, he bought us from sin. And then finally, by that most loving and gracious act in verses 13 and 14, we have been sealed with God's spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. Now, up to verse 10, Paul has been speaking about the blessings of God to all believers. But notice in verse 11, Paul does something else. Paul says that we have obtained an inheritance. And then in verse 12, he qualifies that we. We as those who were the first to hope in Christ, he says. The we refers to Jewish Christians. But in verse 13, he includes the Gentiles, the non-Jews, everybody else. See verse 13, in him, Paul says, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, as we'll see uh, in this letter, God is bringing together the greatest human divide in all of history. Jew and Gentile together as one people under God, uh, sorry, one people of God under Jesus. And God gives to all who believe his Holy Spirit as a seal guaranteeing what is to come. If you were a cattle rancher, take it there's not any here this morning, uh, but you would put a seal on your beast, on your cattle. You would brand your cattle with a hot iron to mark them out as those cattle that were owned by you. They were your responsibility. They belong to you. And God has given us his spirit to mark us out as those who belong to him. God has made us his children. We are his heirs. We inherit every blessing that comes from him. God has made us sinners his own. He treasures and cares for us. He assures us that he will never let us go. See, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. No blessing is lacking. No blessing is held back. These are staggering things that God has done for us. The question is, how do these blessings come to us? Well, it's actually not that hard to see in the text, is it? Paul makes it very clear. Every blessing that comes to us is all in Christ. Jesus is all through this passage. Actually, Paul refers to Jesus 18 times in the first 14 verses. Verse 3, actually ought to be getting familiar by now, but let me pick it up there again. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. See, it's in Christ that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Verse 5, our adoption is through Jesus Christ. Verse seven, it's in Jesus that we have both redemption and forgiveness. And then in verses nine and 10, God's plan for the fullness of time has been set forth in Christ. As well as those things in verse 11, our inheritance has been attained in him. Our hope is in Christ, verse 12. And verse 13, we receive the Holy Spirit when we believe in Christ. See, no blessing that we receive comes about in any other way other than through Jesus Christ. It's the way that God blesses. It's really quite simple. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have the blessings. And the way that Christ achieves them for us is by his death, the shedding of his blood on the cross, so that we might be redeemed, forgiven, adopted, and incorporated into God's future plans for all creation. So how blessed we are if we are among those who have put their trust in Jesus. But can I say that Ephesians 1 draws a line in the sand. See, given what we see in these verses, how foolish are those who want to argue that all religions are the same, that our differences are merely cultural rather than substantial and foundational. Ephesians 1 begs to differ, doesn't it? Every blessing of God comes through Jesus Christ. No blessing of God comes in any other way other than through Jesus Christ. Not by Buddha, not by Muhammad, not by Krishna, not by the Dalai Lama, not by anyone, but Jesus. Now, that doesn't, of course, mean that we shouldn't treat people of other faiths with great respect and love. Of course, we should. But we can in no way assume that they have any share in God or his blessings whatsoever. See, Christians are those who agree with the Apostle Peter. When he was questioned, remember, by the religious authorities in Acts chapter 4, he responded with great clarity and conviction that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. See, if any professing Christian, thinks otherwise then they're actually opposed to the very foundations of Christianity and are in danger of missing all of God's blessings well that's how these blessings come to us but the question that remains is why why do these blessings come to us and the answer that Paul gives here is that it's all because of God his plan his purpose his grace and the blessings that are ours as, as, as Christians are all, Paul, a part of his plan, Paul says. So it's God's plan to shower us with all of these blessings. Now, again and again, Paul makes it clear that it's all he's doing and it's all in line with his will, that is God's will. And so in verse 1, Paul is an apostle, notice, by the will of God. Uh, verse 5, we are predestined and adopted according to the purpose of his will. While in verse 9, he has made known the mystery of his will according to the purpose set forth in Christ. And then finally in verse 11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. See, this is God's plan. He does it all, we don't. He plans, he initiates, he fulfills his plans, all in accordance with his will. I didn't find God, he found me. And boy, aren't I thankful that he did. But his plan is bigger than simply blessing us. Our blessing is part of what comes through his greater purpose, which is now revealed to those who are in Christ Jesus. See verses 9 and 10? They are the two verses that sum up, if you like, God's intentions for his entire creation. They're a summary of his entire purpose from before the creation of the world and spanning into eternity. This is what God is on about. If you want to know what God's on about, what he's doing, well, here it is in these two verses, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. See, here is God's ultimate purpose. It's the climax towards uh, which all of history is heading. If you want to understand what life and the universe is about, well, here it is in verse 10. God's ultimate purpose is to sum up everything under Jesus and to give him the glory. See, creation is heading towards a climax at which everything and everyone will come under the headship of Jesus Christ. Here's God's grand plan for the entire universe, for all of history. There's no shortage of people out there who are searching for truth and meaning in our world, but who remain lost and in the dark. But there is a plan, and God has blessed us by letting us in on it. And God is not weak or powerless in fulfilling his plan in history. I mean, in fact, it's actually already well advanced, isn't it? I mean, Jesus has already come, as he was promised he would. He's died and he's risen from the dead. He's seated now at God's right hand in glory, in verse 20, we're told, and the day is coming when he will return to judge. So how does all this then help us think about God's power today and what at times appears to be a weak-looking church? Well, in the words of uh, the author Richard Phillips, people don't think much of the church or even Christians. You know, the church is perhaps uh, somewhere that people go to uh, get something for themselves perhaps or maybe just to get a lift in some way or to get some help or to make some decent friends. But the world looks on the church as something insignificant and weak. You know, the great and powerful things of the world actually deal with things like skyscrapers and stock markets and rising and falling empires, those kinds of things. You know, that way of thinking was especially a danger I think for the fledgling churches of Paul's day they were viewed as an insignificant cult amongst a, a sea of religious groups and perhaps the Ephesians even viewed themselves that way but here we see that the church cannot be rightly understood apart from seeing our relationship with the exalted Christ the one in whom God is fulfilling his eternal plans to unite all things in heaven and earth God's plan, of course, is all about Jesus, not about me. I'm not at the centre of the universe. But we're a part of God's eternal plan by being united in Christ. So we need to lift our eyes to see the one who rules over every power and rules over all of history. And we mustn't be unsettled by the surface appearance of things. And the church is part of God's grand plans. And, you know, we often come to this part of any given sermon, and we just want to know what we need to do. But notice that's not what Paul is concerned about at this point in his letter. He's going to get there. But what what is he concerned about? Paul, Paul is first and foremost concerned here about what we know, about what we remember, so that we don't lose heart. See, our world is not random and meaningless. God has a plan that spans all of time and eternity. And it is all brought to fruition in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my prayer is the same of that of the Apostle Paul's that he prays in the second part of chapter 1, in verses 17 and following. And so as I conclude uh, this morning, uh, let me pray this prayer for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray